All right, what's up, Salt City? So as we continue to have improvements to the office space, I will continue to acknowledge them because I feel like it's my personal responsibility to take you on a virtual tour of our, of our office space. So look at the light bulbs. Aren't they nice? I kind of want to play with them, but I'm not going to. I think our tech guys will get mad at me for that. Um, uh, yeah, guys, so we're back in Ecclesiastes. We're in chapter five today. If you've got your Bibles, it'd be awesome if you would flip there with me. Um, also, if you don't have a Bible, uh, feel free to download the YouVersion Bible app on your phone. Uh, we love the Bible at Salt City. We think it's an awesome book. want to invite you guys into it with us. And here's the deal. I don't know if any of you have ever had this experience that, that I've had, you know, one or two times in my life um, where I have been completely convinced that I am right about something that I was wrong about. And I, and I know none of you have, have ever had that, but... Uh, I tend to have moments where I'll, you know, I'll tell my wife like, hey, I, I told you about that. And she'll be like, no, you didn't. I went, no, I absolutely did. Only to find out later that, yeah, I maybe didn't. Um, the, uh, the whole finding out a tomato is a fruit thing really got me in junior high. I got in an argument with a buddy of mine and I was just angry, just angry at the thought of a tomato being a fruit. And I was like, there's no way. And I might have lost five bucks on that deal because the stakes escalated a little bit on me. And uh, yeah, I found out it is actually a fruit. Some of you, your minds are blown right now. Yeah, I hate it too. Um, you're with me. But uh, here's what I'm saying. It, it's a common experience for us to be completely convinced that we are right when we're actually really wrong. Um, and, and here's the, the hard, but I think really good truth that we have to be able to see in Ecclesiastes 5 today is that that is actually the baseline condition of the human heart. That that is actually true of all of us and the stakes are way higher than five bucks. It's our eternal soul. And the reality is that what it means to be human is to be convinced that you're right about a lot of things in the world when you're actually wrong. And the question is, Will you be willing to admit it? Because even in small, dumb things, how hard is that to admit? Even when you're presented with the facts about how wrong you were, uh, you try to work your way around it, right? And pretend like you weren't actually that wrong. What, when, what about when you're presented with the facts of something much more significant, something broad reaching across your entire life, if you're shown that you've actually been really, really wrong? Are you willing to actually admit that when the stakes are really high. And so Ecclesiastes 5 is primarily about us coming to agreement with God about what he says is true about the world and more specifically who he says is right and who he says is wrong. And I hope that we're willing to come to a place where we can agree with him this morning. Um, so let's go to Ecclesiastes 5. It starts out by saying this, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now, when I was doing research on this, I saw a lot of things written or sermons preached that said something along the lines of this, hey, when you go to church, make sure you go in a respectful attitude. Because, because here's, here's what they're doing is when Solomon penned this, he was talking about going to the temple and he was giving instructions to the Israelites 
about how they should go to the temple and revere God. They shouldn't go there lightly because they're entering the very near presence of God. And that's a holy and somewhat frightening place to be. And so they should go there with respect. And so what people do is they'll say, we're going to contextualize this to modern life. And so when you go to a church service, you should go respectfully and, and sort of prepare your heart and be ready to worship, which obviously I'm about that. Like I'm a pastor. So yeah, I mean, do that. But I think that that actually sells short um, what the reality of what this text is teaching us today under the new covenant as people who are in Christ. And here's why is because first Corinthians six says that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. Let me read you this. this. This reality is utterly amazing. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Did you catch that? What Ephesians is saying is that we with Jesus as the cornerstone, we the church, people who trust in Christ have become a new organic temple that we're growing together into a dwelling place for God, that, that we are the new temple as believers, that we are the place where heaven and earth meet. And that is an absolutely stunning reality. I think it's one that's really important in the current state that we're in because even though we can't gather together physically, that doesn't mean church is canceled because we are the church. We are his temple. We are his presence on earth and his spirit lives in us. And so God is still living in his temple. He's living in us as the church. You are the living, breathing house of God. But here's what that means. Here's why that's significant to this text is because you don't need to just guard yourself when you go to a church building. You need to guard your entire life because you are the presence of God. You're in his presence constantly. And so we should take these instructions for our entire life. And so then the question is, what do we need to guard our steps from? Well, Ecclesiastes 5 is going to explain that. Look at the second half of verse 1. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. All right, so the Bible is getting very real with us. It's using the word fool. It's just coming right at us. But, but here's the thing. The Bible uses that word a little bit differently than we do in our modern context. So the way that the Bible uses it doesn't necessarily uh, involve being intelligent or unintelligent. It means something else. And it just explained what it means. Look back the second half of verse one, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Okay. So fools are people who do evil without realizing it. So a fool is a person who thinks that good is evil and evil is good. Now, I want you to process this with me for a minute because it's easy to, to move on too quickly from this reality that Ecclesiastes is pointing out because none of us self-identify as fools. <laughs> Nobody wants to admit that about themselves. We don't really want to even consider that possibility that we might be one. But I want you to think about the definition of, of a fool because by definition, if you were a fool, you would be the last one to know. Fools are ones who don't know that they're fools because they don't realize that they're doing wrong. 
And this is actually what I want you to see is that the baseline condition of every human being is foolishness. That's the theological concept of original sin. There's something that's gone wrong in us. And so what that means is your instincts are to trust your instincts, which is evidence that your instincts are untrustworthy. Because what God says about your instincts, your intellect, your morality is that it's fundamentally fraud, flawed, broken, and untrustworthy. And so we're at disagreement with God in that, and we're not going to win that disagreement. So let me, let me show that to you in scripture. So Romans 1 says that we have limited and ignorant intellect. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. The Bible also says that we have an inability in and of ourselves to do what is morally good. That's Romans 3. It says that no one does good, not even one. The Bible says that spiritually, we are actually enemies of Christ. So that's Philippians 3, 18. That we're, we're not with Christ in an agreement with him naturally, but we're actually opposed to him naturally. So, so this is what I'm, I'm trying to get you to see because I think this is a really important foundation for us understanding what it means to follow Jesus is that when we tend to think of bad people, we tend to think of people sort of out there. But bad people aren't like a Bond villain that loves evil and kind of maniacally laughing at their own evil. They're people that are genuinely trying to do the right thing. That, that often do good things, but all of their instincts are contrary to what God has made them to be. So, so this is your life situation in life. So you're navigating life and it's a really dangerous place for you to be. And here's why, because you're making moral decisions that are incredibly consequential. There's spiritual life and death and, and realistically physical life and death at stake based on the way that you navigate your life. All right, so, so imagine this. It's like you are walking through a field with a bunch of landmines underneath of it. Okay, you're walking through a landmine field. But here's what's true is you, you have a metal detector. That's your, your intellect, your instincts, your morality, but the metal detector is broken, <laughs> okay? And so it's not actually picking up the landmines, but on top of that, you've got another problem. It's that you don't know that the metal detector is broken. So you have a false sense of security. You're walking through a field of landmines in life and you don't even realize that there's danger because you think you're safe because of your broken intellect, and so because of that fallenness, there's a giant gap between us and God where Ecclesiastes chapter five says this in verse two is for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. So we'll get to that second piece that therefore let your words be few, how that's connected. But first I want you to see that gap that God is in heaven and you are on earth. And how that relates to the foolishness that it talks about in the text 
is that a fool is a person who either fails to realize that a gap exists, that you're just wandering through life, you don't recognize your own brokenness, you don't see your own sinfulness, you don't know that there's a problem, or you recognize that that gap exists. If, if you've been a Christian for a while, I think you understand the baseline sinfulness of humanity, but it's possible to know that intellectually and not recognize the depths of that in your own life because it's your instinct to actually cover up that gap and pretend like it's not really there. And that's what foolishness is. And what Ecclesiastes 5 is about to tell us is actually one of the best places to find a fool is within the church. It's within people who claim Christianity. And so I want to I talk to you for a second. There's some of you I know that are, that are on this stream that you wouldn't typically go to church. Maybe you don't consider yourself a Christian or, or you would say you're spiritual or you're a Christian, but, but you have a problem with organized religion. And part of that problem is uh, you've maybe been hurt by some of the hypocrisy and judgmentalism of the church or, or you've been hurt by the perceived hypocrisy and judgmentalism of the church. And here's what I want you to know. If you're frustrated by people who tend to be arrogant and claim one thing but live a different a different way, God actually agrees with you in that assessment. That, that God right here in Ecclesiastes is affirming that you see, that thing that you see as wrong and he's asking his people to be different. And so I'm sorry if that's you. I'm sorry if you've been burned by the church. I'm sorry if you've experienced hypocrisy within the religious community. But, but can I ask you with that, not to engage in the same thing that frustrates you about the church. So if you're frustrated by uh, pride and judgmentalism, don't respond to that with pride and judgmentalism. Lean in and see that there might be something true in what God is saying, that the church is full of broken people who are trying to figure that out but are imperfect in that pursuit. But to those of us who are within the church, we've got to take a look at what Ecclesiastes is saying about our instincts towards foolishness as we live out being the church, being his people. So there's two foolish things that people will be tempted to do in the presence of God. There's actually way more than two, but there's two specifically that Ecclesiastes points out. And here's the two that will make promises that we can't keep and that will be quick to speak and slow to listen. So making promises that we can't keep. So a lot of Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7 is talking about the religious practice of the Israelites called vows. And so they would, what they would do is they would come into the temple and they would make a promise to God. Um, they would say, God, I'm, I'm going to pay you this amount of money or I'm going to give you this amount of my goods or I'll give you this sacrifice, which in and of itself was a, a little bit flawed. It, it, it was a uh, it was coming from the pagan people of the time who had these little deities in their house and they would give the deities a sacrifice so that it would rain or so that their life would be blessed. And so there's kind of this concept that the way you interact with God is that you give him some stuff to sort of manipulate him into doing what you want him to do in your life. And so the concept itself was flawed. It was a misunderstanding that when we come into the house of God, it's not primarily us making promises to, to God, but it's God making promises to to us, that he's the one in power to bless us, not primarily us in power to bless him. But there was a second, even worse thing that Ecclesiastes is pointing out is they wouldn't follow through on their promises. Do you ever make God promises that you can't keep? Do you have that temptation when you fall into sin 
and you're frustrated with it to kind of pray to God, God, I'm never going to do that again. I'll never hurt you like that again. Or do you get desperate in your life when things are going wrong and, and kind of say, um, God, if you'll just make this better in my life, then I'll really follow you for the rest of my life. Or, or are you surprised when you're obeying God and your life isn't blessed because you thought there was a transactional relationship between your morality and God's goodness to you? You make promises that you can't keep. The second foolish thing to do in the presence of God is to be quick to speak and slow to listen. This is verses one and two again. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are in earth. Therefore, let your words be few. All right. So it warns us not to be rash with our mouth, but it also says not to be hasty with our hearts. So this isn't talking purely about prayer length, about not talking a bunch in prayer. Although there's some wisdom in that. Like if you're praying in a group of people, some of you, you, you circle the planes for a long time before you hang up. Like just, just, just say amen. Just hang up. God's always there. You always can call him back. All right. Um, but but you if, if you don't pray a lot in groups and that makes you nervous, you don't have to have fancy, long religious prayers. So there is some wisdom in that. But it's also saying something else. It's talking about the heart condition that comes out in a lot of words in the presence of God. It's talking about a disposition and attitude that we walk through life with that's a self-justification, a kind of puffing up that, that we get in that gap between heaven and earth. And our temptation is to try to fill that gap with our own moral goodness. And, and, and here's the thing, I can't point out exactly where that will come out in your life because there's, so, there's an infinite amount of ways that that desire to puff ourselves up will come out of us. Um, it could come out for you in overt pride or it could come out in insecurity, which is still self-focus. It could be primarily in your thoughts and in your motivations and, and what you feel. It could come out in comparison to other people and trying to demonstrate to God that, that you're morally good. And so it's hard to even apply that specifically, but I want to ask you, would you ask the Holy Spirit where he sees that in your life and to expose that in your life? The, the, the important thing is to realize that that's our instinct so that God can start to weed that instinct out of us. But, but here's our instinct, guys, inevitably, is to puff ourselves up before God. So I was writing this sermon. I looked out of my window and I saw a turkey standing in the middle of the road, a wild turkey. And if you guys live in the North Metro, you've had this experience because for some reason, wild turkeys have just infested Northeast. And I live in New Brighton. They're all the way out there too. And they are just, guys, I just don't, they're weird. Like I, 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 if some of you are big turkey lovers, I'm sorry, but like, what's the, what's the red thing around the neck? What's that about? They're too big. They're creepy. They fly at my window. I'm just... I'm not about it. So there's this turkey in the middle of the road and uh, he's doing that puff himself up thing. You know what I'm talking about? Like usually they're, I don't know, normal turkey size. <laughs> Apparently don't know a lot about turkeys. I, I maybe should have looked up some information. They're usually turkey size. And then they do the Thanksgiving turkey thing. You know, they puff themselves up and their tail feathers are up. And, and, and this turkey is just strutting around in the middle of the road. I don't know if this is like a, a mating thing or like I'll fight you thing, but it, it came across like, come at me, bro, right? Like he's, he's proud. He's puffing. He's trying to make himself look bigger than he actually is. This is what I'm saying. That is absolutely your tendency in all of life in particular when you're in the presence of God. 
you will try in every possible way that you can to make yourself look bigger than you actually are, tougher than you actually are, more significant than you actually are. And what will end up happening is that you'll walk through life, living life as a teacher instead of a learner. And so you'll come into the presence of God with a lot of words to say because you believe yourself to have a lot of things to teach other people. And you might even start to believe in yourself that you have something to teach God about how he should rule his world. You'll be tempted even in prayer and of course, you can ask God to do things in the world. There's, there's other places in scripture that, you know, Hebrews 4, to draw near to the throne room of God with the, the confidence in his grace, uh, the persistent widow who comes to God over and over again with the same requests. I, I get that, but we got to focus in on, on this truth that Ecclesiastes is also teaching us, that you'll have this tendency to come to God to say, I don't like how the world is operating, and I want you to operate it the way that I think it should be operated. And so you come to him with a lot of words and a lot of ideas about what he should do in the world, and there's a default of arrogance behind it. If, if God's presence is a college lecture hall, you walk in, and instead of taking a seat in the audience, you grab the post and start teaching. And we're missing the point about what it means to be in the presence of God. It's obviously not to teach him or to teach other people about our moral correctness. It's to hear from him, to be interrogated by him and by his presence and by his spirit about the way we should be living. And so Ecclesiastes encourages us to slow down on our speaking and instead to listen. And, and so I tried to apply this the other day by just going on a, a prayer walk, but instead of throwing up all these requests to God, um, just trying to, to be still and to listen. And so I just started it out by saying, God, would you speak to me? Tell me about what you want me to know about life. Tell me about my sin and the things that you want me to repent of. I, I just want to be quiet and acknowledge that you're here and that you have something to say. And I, I want to encourage you guys to do that same thing. Um, and if you don't do anything else from the sermon, go get with God and be silent before him and ask him to speak to you. And that might look different. You might not feel like you're hearing that much and that's okay. Still show him reverence and respect by being quiet before him. And at first I was just walking around in quiet, but I felt like God started to bring scripture to mind and he started to speak to me and it felt like his hand was starting to be heavy on my life. And one of the things that he brought up in, in my soul that um, Drew and I have actually talked a lot about is even areas that I need to repent of trying to puff myself up through ministry. And what COVID has exposed is this desire in me to validate my existence or my gifts or whatever through numbers and through people encouraging me. Or um, I think there can be this, I think we've had this tendency as a church to be in some senses numbers driven. And, and look, there's nothing wrong with numbers because numbers are people and we want as many people as humanly possible to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. We are unashamed about that. But the problem is, is when we start using numbers and the growth of our church or whatever to justify 
our existence before God or to feel accepted or proud because of those things. And the reality is, is there's this temptation in my heart to take things that are about Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, and to make them about Jordan Adams. And that's gross. And I felt the weight of that in a way that I haven't felt in a long time. And I apologize to God and I still am apologizing to him. And I apologize to you guys because I, I don't want to be like that. I want this church, I want my life to be about his name and his fame and his glory and not mine. And it's offensive when I try to replace his glory with mine. And that's a pretty scary place to be. But I think what I'm learning is the fear of God, even though it's a little scary in some senses, is also a really safe place for me to be because it's where I should be. Because it's, it's the only way that I know of to honor God and to start agreeing with him with what's true about the world. And that's what verse 7 talks about in Ecclesiastes is that we should fear the Lord. And fear the Lord has been notoriously a little bit difficult to understand and, and interpret. And so I don't even want to try and do that because I think it's... Um, more important for us to sort that out in our relationships with God. But there's a text that, that jumped into my mind actually from Job. Job and Ecclesiastes have a lot of similarities. They're both wisdom literature about the fear of God. And the, the book of Job is about this man who suffers uh, incredibly in life. And on the whole, he obeys God, but his fault is, is that in his suffering, he goes on a little bit of a tirade against God and he tells God to show up and present himself and to give him an answer for why his life is the way that, that it is. And God does. And it's something else. So let me, let me read this to you uh, from Job. So starting in chapter 37 and then into 38. So God will describe what men should do, what Men and women should do is fear God. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. God is telling Job, dress for action and listen to me. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the seas with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors? And said, thus far shall you come and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. So God takes Job on a tour of creation and says, where were you when I made the heavens and the earth? When I stopped the seas from overcoming the land? Do you know how this works, Job? And Job responds a little bit later the way that he should. He says this, behold, I'm of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. His words are stopped in the presence of God because he realizes how small he is. 
So this is what happened with the turkey. He was strutting around in the middle of a road, in the road, and a truck drove up. And he got small really quick. Because he realized his actual size was nothing in comparison to the truck. God is a truck in our lives. He cuts us down to size by the sheer magnitude and power of his character. And here's the thing, the gap between us and God, the, the size of him in comparison to the size of us will be frustrating and condemning to you if you don't know Jesus, because you will hate that gap. But here's also what I want you to know. If you know Christ and you want him in your life, that gap is not frustrating and condemning. It's actually beautiful. Because when you can agree with him about what's true about your condition, about where you stand in comparison to him, God does not hold that gap against you, but actually bridges that gap for you. So human beings throughout all of time have been trying to climb up to heaven, but here was the actual solution that we needed was for God to come down to earth. And we talked earlier about how we need to guard our steps as we come into the temple of God. Here's what's true is that God came to earth. The man, Jesus Christ, walked into the temple. And in this unbelievable moment, in this sort of dark irony in the foolishness of human beings, they were continuing on with their religious forms, their, their foolish religion that was supposed to be celebrating the presence of God and God walked in the room and they didn't know it was him. And so Jesus guarded the temple. He flipped the tables. He pushed back on their foolishness of, of turning God's house into a place to try to make money off of poor people. And he called them back to a different life. And eventually, calling himself the temple, saying that, that if you were to, to knock over the temple, he could build it back in three days alluding to his crucifixion and his resurrection. Jesus was the sacrifice for sins in the temple. He was the high priest in the temple and he was the presence of God meeting earth like it does in the temple. And Jesus as the new temple sacrificed himself for us. And what did he cry out on the cross? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They're foolish. They don't recognize what they're doing. But before we were able to recognize our foolishness, God identified it. And instead of crushing it, he crushed his son. So that we could be called out of our ignorance and our foolishness into relationship with God. And here's what's true is that, that Jesus forgave us of our foolishness and then rose from the dead so that we could become the new temple in him, so that we could become the dwelling place of God, the place where heaven meets earth in us. And he gives us his spirit so that we don't have to be so foolish anymore. He offers us a new intellect through purifying us by his word. He offers us an opportunity to live in a new morality by giving us his Holy Spirit to teach us how to live. He offers us new spiritual instincts that are the same instincts of God so that we can be wise in his wisdom, that we can live differently in him. 
The gap is difficult to acknowledge, but once we do, it's beautiful because he bridges the gap for us. He doesn't hold it, hold it against us. But we've got to agree with him and ask him for help. So we've been teaching Graham how to ask for help um, using sign language. Uh, and he, he didn't get it at first. I think, I think it's just that, is, is asking for help. So we're, we're kind of trying to teach him how to do that. And at first he, he didn't get what we were doing with our hands. But now he gets it. He just doesn't like to do it um, because he doesn't want to ask for help. And so there's this consistent thing going on in his life where he's got this truck that he loves and there's this uh, little toy truck driver inside of the truck and he can't get his chubby little hands inside of the cab very well. And so he like tries to get it once, looks around, tries to get it again, and then things escalate very quickly. And the next time he tries his problem solving is slamming the truck against the ground and screaming um, because rage is not a great way to solve problems. And so I look at him and I do the same thing every time, buddy, ask for help. And he looks at me and he knows how to do it. I know he knows that he knows how to do it, but he doesn't want to do it. So he keeps slamming the truck on the ground, which clearly doesn't go well for him. And so I just sit there, ask for help because I want him to learn to embrace his limitations and to ask his dad for help. And the second he does that help, help dad, I'm ready. I'm there in a minute and I can pull that thing out and hand it to him. And every once in a while, he'll tell me, thank you. And it's the best. And we move on with our lives, right? So we're like that. We, we can't solve our own problems, but we really don't want to ask for help. And so the frustration in our life escalates and God's right there saying, I want to help you. Just ask me, embrace your limits. It's okay that you can't help yourself. Let me help you. And so the question for all of our lives is, will we agree with God that we need help? That's what repentance is. It's just saying, God, I know I screwed this up. I want to come back to you. And, and you don't just do that once. That's the lifestyle of a Christian. You don't enter Christianity through repentance and then live as a Christian some other way. You live as a Christian in constant repentance. Ask the Holy Spirit to make you constantly aware of the infinite amount of ways that you fall short in life and simply ask him for help. And God's ready. He's a good dad. He's ready to help you out. Let's pray. got to feel the weight of my sin, but not only that, I, not even my sin, just, just weakness and my limitedness. I, I'm limited in my ability to understand the world, my, my ability to understand you and, and follow you and impact people and all these things that I want to do. But thank you that you don't hold my sin against me. Thank you that you don't hold our sins against us as a as a body, that you don't hold our weakness against us, but that you actually pursue people into their weakness, that you're strong for us. And, and God, teach us to be a church that is not proud and puffed up, but is, is humble and trusting you. And Holy Spirit, I, I ask you this week to reveal to, to every person listening the ways that we tend to run to our own strength instead of to you. And in the moment when we're tempted to do that, would you help us to stop and just ask you for help to agree with you about our shortcomings and our weaknesses and our sins and to ask you to, to make us whole again. And thank you that you are willing to do that. Thank you, Jesus, that you, the wise one, the fullness of wisdom, 
entered the temple to offer us wisdom and grace and you've been so good to us and God, we wanna learn how to live in your wisdom. We wanna agree with you about our brokenness and then learn how to live differently and so please teach us how to do that. Amen.